0: It's everyone versus the Decepticons. I'm Tom Panneries, and this is Origin Story.
1: Who are you? Why are you like this? Like what?
0: Like how you are! I don't know who you are, or where you came from. From now on,
1: you do as I do, Okay?
0: Hello and welcome back to Origins Story, a podcast miniseries brought to you by Pop Culture Affidavit, which is part of the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network. I'm Tom Panneries, and what I'm doing over the course of these 33 episodes is taking a look at all the books I bought from the fall of 1986 to the fall of 1987, which is the first time I collected comics. Our comic this time around is G.I. Joe and the Transformers number 4, which came out on December 30th, 1986, and is the conclusion of this Hasbro-inspired team-up. It has an Al Milgram cover that features group shots of some Joes, Cobras, Autobots, and Power Station Alpha. Reminding us that they have all gotten together to destroy the MacGuffin device. The interior is the same team we've been seeing this whole time. Michael Higgins, writer. Herb Trimpe, penciler. Vince Coletta, inker. Joseph Rosen, letterer. Nelson Yamtov, colors. Bob Harris was the editor. Jim Shooter was your editor-in-chief. All fall Down is the title of the story, and we open with a splash page of Omega Supreme and Blaster standing inside the Ark with several members of both G.I. Joe and Cobra. It's shaking because Power Station Alpha is already at work, drilling along fault lines. The Autobots assess the situation further, realizing that it's much more dire than originally thought. Back at Decepticon headquarters, Shockwave and Bombshell talk about their plans and decide it's time to eliminate Dr. Mindbender. However, Mindbender is saved by the Baroness, who not only knocks him out, but shrinks him down. They fly away to where their new allies are assembling. At Fort Lewis, Mainframe shows Snake Eyes and Scarlet, what he's done to Bumblebee, which isn't much. Then Ratchet shows up at Awhurst to finish fixing him. Dr. Mindbender then walks in receives a well-earned cold shoulder from Snake Eyes, and when Mainframe starts playing around the Cerebro shell that the doctors are rude for Anthony, bombshell transforms from insect to robot, and they figure out they have some modicum of control over the Decepticons through the probe. Hawks sulks and walks around Washington and then gets on the horn to discuss plans to take care of the situation with Parabase Alpha. Ratchet fixed Bumblebee, who then vows that his new name is Goldbug, he becomes the main vehicle via which the Baroness and Scarlet implement Phase 1 of the plan. Plant some devices and detonators on Power Station Alpha, which Dr. Mindbender can then control and pilot into orbit so it can be destroyed safely. Phase 2 <clears throat> involves an all-out attack on the Decepticons by the Joes, Cobras, and Autobots. They fight several Decepticons, including the Constructicons and Devastator. In the end, the Decepticons are defeated, Power Station Alpha is destroyed, and Cobra slithers back from whence it came. Well, except for one of them. The Baroness, she has some business to take care of, which is killing Barbara Larkin. She just happens to do it from far away, right in front of Hawk. The last page shows two scenes: Anthony, now fully recovered, explaining that he saw something really cool, and his mother says not to worry about it. And Hawk placing flowers on Barbara's gravestone. So this is all a lot of plot contrivances, contrivances, and wicked Wango cards, and a this way to get this resolution. Granted, you want to see all your toys fight it out on the page, is what we get. We also have this MacGuffin of Power Station Alpha, which is not sentient and is being controlled, so there has to be some sort of secret side mission, kind of like Black Widow taking care of the portal while everyone else holds off Loki and the aliens. In the very least, the two characters that have to carry out the mission are Baroness and Scarlet, they're two of my favorite characters overall. Scarlet in the comics was never the weaker character or the one who always needs saving. In fact... Neither is Lady J. That's one of the best things about GI Joe. Baroness isn't isn't a slack either, and I like the clearly antagonistic that relationship that the two of them have in the scenes they're in together. Bumblebee becoming Goldbug was a little forced, even back then. Seemed to me to be a. Play, not only to sell the comic, but to sell a toy. Hasbro would eventually release a Goldbug toy, so I guess having him be rebuilt into Goldbug during this issue is a tactic to make the issue seem like it's a collector's item or something. It's not uncommon for a miniseries, of course. There have been a number of miniseries where part of a character's mythology is built up or a new direction is taken. Granted, sometimes that direction lasts for all of six months before the status quo is restored, although Goldbug is at least here to stay in the Transformers issue, so I'm covering. Yes, in some way it is cool to see how directly this affected the Transformers' continuity. No, this doesn't all line up with what's going on, especially since timelines all sorts of screwy across the three books. But at least they tried? They also seem to be trying to give the story some pathos with Barbara's death, and we're probably also showing the consequences of dealing with Cobra. It doesn't particularly work. Had Larry Hama written this, he would have got, given it the touch of subtlety and characterization that he gave to his run on G.I. Joe. Yes, I know this is a comic book dedicated to having your toys play together, but if that's the case, don't try to add a romantic subplot or a political subplot, even if the crooked politician bureaucrat is a staple of so many 80s movies. It's the same with Anthony's storyline. We're supposed to care about this kid because, I don't know, it's supposed to be a way to show the human side of the whole thing, but it's really just panels wasted on people who that should be spent for guns and robots. It's not to say I don't at least give them credit for trying. I mean, there's something to be said about, as my wife puts it, staying in your lane, though. Guns and robots. Guns and robots. That's what we need in this comic. No romance, no politics. Guns and robots. And again, the guns and the robots actually don't look particularly great. I still lay the blame at the feet of Vince Coletta. In prep for this podcast, I'm reading some issues of G.I. Joe's Special Missions. The art in the first four issues of that book, Pencil and Ink by Herb Trimpey, it's really solid. I think that given the chance to ink his own work here, Trimpey would have given us exactly stuff that, was, that we needed. Dynamic, exciting... This is it's flat-looking, it has very little background, plus there's this tendency by the colors to go completely monochromatic when coloring the fights from far away. So instead of a plane that has an actual detailed coloring, it's all blue and red and looks like one of those cheap erasers you get at a birthday party grab bag instead of the toys you'd find under the Christmas tree. I honestly can't remember if this was a personal favorite of mine back in the 80s. I know that I certainly read it because the spine of the books got cracked and rolled. They may have just been because at that point... Those four books were uh, were only the few comics I actually own. And honestly, once I really got into G.I. Joe comics, there were more stories I read over and over. Um, in fact, there are other stories in this series that I've read over and over multiple times. and looking forward to going through those. But I'll be right back with a little more.
1: So day? My name is Stella, and I am the host of Backroll to Oracle, the Barbara Gordon podcast. Backroll to Oracle is a podcast dedicated to Barbara Gordon, the first woman to hold the mantle of Batgirl for an extended period of time, roughly 1967 to 1988. The goal of Backroll to Oracle is to examine the character's history from her first appearances Batgirl and continuing through her tenure as Oracle. Each episode looks at a vintage issue of Detective Comics or Batman, as well as other books like Justice League and Freedom Fighters. And modern issues of backroll and bris prey. I also keep track of news involving Batgirl and other members of the Bat family, and I have a revolving series of segments like Babs in the Tube, which highlights appearances of Babs in TV and film, Shipper Spotlight, which looks at a variety of comic and pop culture couples, gives their history and determines whether they are hot or not, Reading with Stella, which could be described as an audio drama, or just me reading a book that relates to Babs or doesn't, and of course, the mainstay literature recommendation. I have been blessed to interview writers Scott Beatty and Chuck Dixon on their Backroll Year One work, Brian Q. Miller on his Backroll run, Dwayne Swarzynski and Christy Marks on their separate Birds of Prey work, and the creators and actors of the Backroll Spoiled, the web series. I hope to interview more creators and actors in the future. My goal, most importantly, is to make a fun, entertaining, and thoughtful show that people enjoy and from which they learn. Find the show online at TheBatmanUniverse.net and iTunes, and follow the show on Facebook and Twitter at batgirl to oracle Thank you, and fly on, Bat's lovers.
0: So this series is all about discovery of various aspects of comics. But as I've been doing this retrospective, I've been seeing how a lot of this has to do with the disarray of discovery of popular culture as a whole. Especially other media and genres, ones that go beyond the cartoons and occasional live or movie movie or live action TV show I was watching. I already talked about how I've been a little surprised at how things happen simultaneously. The other thing I've noticed is how many things happen organically in a sense. Yes, there were things that premiered in the fall of a particular year that were designed to get me into them, and I can certainly say I took the bait. But then there were those other things that I just stumbled upon, that I was into, I can't remember how I got into them. Even I can't explain how trends among kids worked 30 years ago. Heck, I can't understand them now. Which has brought up another thing in my mind. I have a son who is roughly the same age as I was during the time I was covering this. Although I can't remember if my parents' generation had the same tendency to expose their kids to stuff from their childhood as much as mine does. I don't know. Maybe they did. I just can't remember if my parents had the same sort of mental checklist that we have. You know, Star Wars, E.T., Raiders, Superman. I know that boomer nostalgia was certainly a thing. I don't know if my parents were having conversations about when are they going to first see X, Y, and Z that we have. Maybe they didn't. VCR's home video was all new, not in the way it's been entrenched in our culture over the past 30 years. Plus, Brett seems to pick things up at random, as much as we show him stuff. Sometimes it works, like I say, he might like the Justice League cartoon or Spider Man, and we watch it, and something he wants to see all the way through. Then there's stuff that just kind of he latches on to. And even then, it all comes and goes and waves, just like it did when I was a kid. I also, and I'm being completely honest here, there are times where I wonder if I'm being too nostalgic. Yeah, I know I have two podcasts that rely heavily on pop culture from the past. One's about a specific series of comics, so that's going to be the case. But the other, and this is me, this one, this is about whatever I want it to be. And I've noticed that a lot of what I cover tends to be stuff from a long time ago. I don't talk a lot about a lot of current stuff. Um, I'm really behind on current stuff. I fully admit that I don't have the time to stay on top of current stuff. And uh, talking about it, putting things out on that much of a regular basis where you have to stay current, it's just not something that is possible for me to do. So I stick with the nostalgia. But... I wonder when nostalgia becomes a crutch. Like, when does doing a look back become living vicariously through your kid or something like that? You know, that dangerous sort of pushing them into something that they might not have the most interest in but you did it you want them to experience the same thing you know and I mean in some cases it's you want them to have it better than you did you're pushing them to because you never got the chance or whatever but I don't know you know I I do worry about that like you know should I I be you know I, I don't go to the movies as much as I used to when I was younger so like should I be doing that more, should I be, should I be kind of putting the toys away, and, and looking at the new toys on the shelves doing the sort of cleaning that I was talking about previously but then again, this is fun um, I, I enjoy, I enjoy taking this nostalgic looks at things, it's a little escape I get to do for you know, this episode's a little short 15-20 minutes at a time for these comics um, so I'm going to keep going and and, and actually since I'm done with GI Joe and the Transformers I get to move into the Transformers the, the actual Transformers title with the next episode I'm going to be looking at Transformers number 27 until then you can leave a comment on the Facebook page on the blog where the show notes will be you can email me at popcultureaffidavit at gmail.com um, I will be back in a few weeks with Transformers number 27 So until then, thank you for listening and take care.